This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Winka Doubledam to talk about her book, Strange Objects, New Solids, and Massive Things. Winka is the founder and partner of the WBE certified New York firm Architectonics New York City. Double Dam is also the chair and Miller professor at the Weizmann School of Design's Department of Architecture and director of the Advanced Research and Innovation Lab, both at the University of Pennsylvania. Winka, thank you very much for being here with me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Super happy to be here. Same here. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um... I guess the very short version is I came, I'm originally uh, Dutch, uh, studied architecture in Rotterdam, uh, worked for the usual suspects there, and then came to uh, New York uh, for Columbia University, postgraduate study, uh, worked for a bunch of people, and then started my office in 94, um, and have always combined academics with uh, working in the office. Uh, and, and been quite uh, diligent about it in the sense that never taught more at one place at the same time and also really kept the office uh, going and, and really felt it was a great combination of maybe, um, you know, working in practice, but also having the intellectual stimulants of meeting peers uh, in the academic world. Um, and that's what I'm still doing. So that's it. Interesting. So diving right into the book, as I mentioned, I thought maybe we could start right at the beginning. So you have this theme that you discuss about treating architecture as an object as opposed to planes or kind of inert materials. And so I'd love to hear you elaborate on that more, especially the fact that it's not a new idea, and yet it seems to come back in cycles as a new idea. (laughs) I know. I have written whole texts about how um, mathematics... Uh, discovered the Riemann surfaces, maybe as loops, all those beautiful things in 1837, give or or take uh, a few years. Uh, And then we in architecture still say exactly as you mentioned that this is new. So it's it's been a bit of a pet peeve of mine. Um, But um, I forgot one thing. I I studied actually also sculpture uh, and, and realized I didn't necessarily... Uh, feel I wanted to be a sculptor, but really loved sculpture. And when I studied architecture afterwards, I I realized very quickly that most people seem to work in plants, and I never did. I always worked in space. Um, and that was uh, hugely helped very early on. I think I was probably one of the first people, at least uh, in the U.S., uh, who worked completely 3D in the computer. And that was because Holland was, funny enough, never is never the first on that level, but then was very early in working 3D on the computer. So I graduated um, in 1990 in Rotterdam with... Um, 
little animation and wireframe still, you know, with an animation and 3D uh, designed objects. And uh, when I came to uh, the U.S., kept doing that. So for the, what was kind of interesting is for the longest time, we worked 3D in the computer, would slice uh, plans and sections out of that and would draw the rest in hand. So we would total opposite of any other office that would sketch manually and then put everything 2D in AutoCAD. So we were like from the beginning, I guess, the inside out office. <laughs> and so you had mentioned being an early adapter of, of 3D technology. And so, you know, of course, the book is a great exp- exploration of all your different projects and case studies. And so one theme, of course, there's a couple, but one theme that seems to be running throughout the entire thing isn't just the idea of exploring architecture three-dimensionally. It is more of, you know, whether it's parametric or unique, innovative shapes and connections, all aided by computer mathematics, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the, yeah. Oh, yeah. Go no, go ahead. And so the question I have is, you know, have you found that you've, had, you've, you've dealt with your process any differently over the years as the technology has gotten better, or have you still a, a, approached it the same way? Oh, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> in the beginning, it was very funny. I mean, the way we worked in FormZ uh, early on in the beginning of the 90s was, was, um, was essentially building, sometimes we build a physical model and then put every centimeter or every half inch, we put a dot and then measure that in space as an XYZ coordinate. That's why our manual version of scanning, um, which of course now is greatly helped by 3D scanners. Um, and almost everything else uh, has changed. Uh, the fact that we all work multi-platform, you know, there is really not, at least not in our office, a moment that you work just on one software, you have typically a bunch of them going. Um, but also the, the level of complexity relative, let's say, from design to manufacturer, manufacturing has hugely changed. Where when we were in the 90s, you know, I was also teaching Columbia at that time, and uh, we were making things that you really couldn't even make a model of, probably. Let's stand the building. Um, and that has been really uh, changed by uh, 3D printing, where students, we actually have makerbots in studio for the students where they can test their designs while they're designing it, but also because it teaches them to, to kind of close surfaces in the right way and make sure it's 3D printable, which in, in the, let's say, next step is also, you know, something that can be made and stands and all those good stuff, good things. So he, that's, it's all hugely changed. I think the fact that we can test uh, the things that we make in the computer real time is really changed the way we think about what we make in the computer also. And, and the complexity, of course, you know, we can, we're able to make, more complex things, or we're able to make very simple things um, that now are actually, uh, that used to be maybe very hard to make. Uh, a simple thing is never a simple thing, as we architects know. Uh, but now you can actually make that by, you know, FDF, file to factory manufacturing processes. So you also talk about something that is a bit unorthodox, unorthodox compared to a lot of firms, and that is the idea of engaging and interacting with manufacturers directly and early as opposed to drawing something and then having a contractor overprice it in the end, we'll say. And so the question I have for you is, you know, not only could you walk us through a little bit this idea of progressive optimization in terms of architecture instead of industrial design, but also, you know, 
as a practicing architect, I'm curious, have you run into challenges with that? Or do you find that it's been, people are receptive and it works very well for you? <laughs> is construction ever easy? Is my question for you. No, I mean, it's, you know, it was, it was more, it was more, um, when I, when, you know, one of the first buildings I built here in New York City was uh, 497 Greenwich. And I ran very, I ran so quickly into, for example, the Kuna wall. I wanted to basically have these folds, 3D folds, and asked uh, curtain wall companies that, you know, listen, this is a curtain wall, 90% standard, 10% not standard, uh, expecting that they would give me a normal price for the 90% and maybe a slightly altered price for the 10%. Instead, they they looked at me, thought difficult, and made the whole thing, whatever, double the price, let's say. So it, it wasn't possible. It was a low-budget project, and I felt like I couldn't let my client down. And, and this was actually the first time that I realized um, that this was possible. So what happened is where also first I thought these folds could have uh, maybe just caulk, you know, no mullion, but like caulk and uh, caulking would hold the thing. It turned out that simple physics, um, the top plane would slide, was stronger, the, the force was stronger than the caulk could hold. So it wasn't possible. And then uh, Jamie Carpenter is a good friend of mine and I was – talking to him about it and very frustrated, very, I'm a bit stubborn, you could say. And he's like, well, you know, you could fold it. And I was like, ah, great solution. So he gave me two addresses. One was Boeing in LA uh, or a derivative company that makes the windows, let's say, for Boeing. And uh, another company was uh, Creekers in Barcelona. And I asked both a price and they came back, lo and behold, both of them, same price, uh, and more or less same uh, timing, very interesting, just before Christmas. So everyone went on Christmas vacation, came back, and after Christmas, the LA company said to me, well, that was just for one layer of glass, essentially doubling that price. So that was, I, after having been very happy that this was so affordable, uh, not so happy, and called uh, Barcelona and said, um, listen, that quote you gave us is for double glazing, right? And they said, yeah. And I said, that included travel, right? You said it's including transport. And I said, yeah, okay, you just got the project uh, and gave it to them. And, uh, you know, this is where I started. And this was, you're right, this was all before I ever bid out the project because essentially um, I realized by just asking preliminary quotes from curtain wall companies that the, the standard companies were not going to help me. Um, the other thing I realized very quickly is that, you know, having a great curtain wall consultant is extremely helpful. So did then Israel Berger, Bill Logan, uh, I've worked with him ever since, um, really was super essential in, in helping figure out the details and stuff. And we actually made a price, uh, lower than a standard curtain wall, which was incredible. So, um, yeah, it's in, in all, I think that first time that I worked outside of the GC into more working with manufacturers got me addicted because I realized a whole bunch of things. One, manufacturers are fantastic people. They're really advanced in their thinking. They have amazing <laughs> factories. Um, they can do things that are far beyond what you're expecting. And um, it's way more fun. 
So the only where it where it gets kind of hairy, uh, and that's why I said construction is never easy, is when you get to bidding and you're saying, well, I already have a company doing the folded glass. Here's the price, and just gave you know give it to the people who are bidding. They they kind of don't really love that because what happens is you take a very difficult part out of their hands, and that's exactly where they probably felt they were going to make some money. Um, and they don't. So, you know, that is from the beginning a bit of friction that remains to be a little bit of friction. Um, but begrudgingly, they typically go with it and, and deal with it. But, yeah, I ever since I've had that experience, which happened more or less just because, you know, the standard curtain wall company didn't want to do it, um, really got addicted to that idea and realized that if you do, and it's, and I have to say, it's an investment from our side, Brian. Very interesting. And so that kind of brings me up to the next point I wanted to talk about. Throughout the book, you're, you present your one-to-one prototypes and the fact that you're able to use some more prefabrication and some really complex mathematics stuff that a lot of firms I don't think get the chance to kind of explore. I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit, not only that process, but also how you are able to work with clients who seem to want that and understand how valuable that is. <laughs> yeah, you ask good questions. Um, I don't know that they want that. You know, it's it's uh, it's more like we, for example, we did a house called Gypsy Trail um, that is, I don't think, in the book. Um no, and it, it was, you know, clients who said, listen, we have a small budget, we have a house on the lake, how can you optimize that? And, and that's an interesting question, right? Um, so we optimized it by putting all the hyperactive functions in, the, let's say, in the inner body of the house uh, and left the, the rest of the spaces kind of more like relaxed, loft-like. So, but then that inner thing, it was kind of fun to feel really think of it how to minimize it so we shrink wrapped it into a shape which became a very strong shape um whereas the house was really loosely configured around that so you know so that's more how how these processes sometimes go that the client will say something that kind of jars something in my head or in the office's team's head and uh, and we then go, hmm, that's actually very interesting to think about is how could we interpret that? And so that's often uh, often the case. Um, sorry, did that should I repeat that? It's it's often actually a question from the client that isn't exactly what we come up with, but we tend to loosely interpret that and to see how we can make, let's say, a strange object uh, that we feel answers those questions, does minimize, for example, in that case, uh, the cost, and and at the same time gives some really interesting experiential effects for the clients, for the project, um, puts the project on kind of a different level, and, and I have to say, for example, the clients of that house uh, later said it was the most relaxed space they've ever been in because it was so um, loosely configured that they were like, this is our permanent house, but we feel we're constantly on vacation. So I thought that was kind of a nice <laughs> a nice way of putting it. Um, so, so often the kind of non-standard way we look at things is where it starts. And maybe that's why the projects tend to look also 
a bit non-standard because we tend to think that there are other solutions to things than, than the ones you normally come up with. And I want to revisit that idea of non-standard. You had mentioned working on a smaller lake house. And so I will say, uh, usually when I'm talking to authors of these, these firm profiles and monographs, there does seem to be a focus on either large projects or small projects. And so I will say you have both. And so, you know, the question is, do you, I mean, not that do you have a preference, I mean, does your firm tend to focus on a certain size or do you do both and that helps you? I'd be curious to hear more about that. Mm-hmm. Well, I have two answers for you. One is this book is not a monograph. Uh, we have oh, yes, three other ones. It's a, kind of a manual that uh, kind of reflects the non-standard way we're working with, uh, the non-standard way we're working. Um, following a discussion we had with the publisher, um, who said, why would you do another monograph? You have three already. Uh, what I love is the weird or weird or non-standard way you're working. Why don't we do a book about that? So I have to totally credit the publisher who had the, the clarity of mind to, to observe this. Um, but what you said about small and large, um, I always, and, and it might be the sculptor in me, um, I always love small and large projects equally because I feel that in the small projects we are able to experiment in much more drastic ways uh, and really push material um, experimentation much further um, and, and often take quite big decisions in those projects. We often prototype those, like for example, the Inkscape project, we prototype that actually one-to-one in, uh, in a car design uh, company in LA um, and, and actually meditated in it with the client who felt that in order for him to experience the space, he actually had to meditate in it. Um, but that also, that whole process and the way we made that dome, um, that was very, um, detailed and 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 uh, talked very much about uh, no, non-judgmental ways of sitting and experiencing and kind of freeing up your mind, which is kind of all very floaty maybe, but it's also quite realistic. Uh, then when we got um, the big stadium project in China, which really is a 116-acre site with seven buildings, we um, one of the buildings is a table tennis stadium and um, the client said, could it be hybrid? Because uh, they were also tired of spending a lot of money on, on these stadiums that then honestly turn into white elephants uh, are really no longer used. And um, I said, absolutely, we can make it so that it's uh, also usable for concerts and theater. So from the beginning, we studied a way of sitting, let's say, in a sports arena versus sitting in a, in a concert hall or a, a theater and made a mix that was really hard, actually, made a mix that still would follow the Olympic rules, um, but also would be much more conducive to theater or music. And then the the development of the rest of the building that is kind of an ellipse, like actually uh, Inkscape's dome was, an ellipse that um, we made as a set of intersecting uh, discs on bulging discs almost so that the, the slippages between the two would allow for other programmatic either circulation or program programs itself you know program to happen 
um, and was in that sense a much more loosely uh, uh, defined space, but in the same time as a typology completely unrecognizable. So it, it doesn't look like a stadium, doesn't look like a theater, maybe. Uh, it has brass shingles on it, a glass die grid. So from the outside, it, the skin reminds you kind of of uh, maybe fish uh, scales or they're very. Um, softly shining also because the brass sh- shines a little bit and the, the diagrid also. So it's it's interesting, you know, these kind of questions, I think. So one is, one, the study came, yes, from the smaller project, but then also the client's question to make a hybrid building uh, really helped develop that uh, a lot further. And uh, it was a super interesting question to us. So now uh, we have this, we call it the set of wobbly disks, that are, so the building is actually, everyone thinks it's, it's symmetrical. It's completely not. It's rotational. So if you actually zoom in, you realize the, the building is not at all symmetrical. Everything is slightly off and rotates very softly around each other. Um, so, yeah, super interesting for us, you know. And also, I think the, the client really, it was an invited competition. So they must have loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and so. As I mentioned, you had mentioned the idea of non-standard. And, of course, a lot of your projects, you know, kind of exemplify the idea of non-standard. One thing, and again, I, sometimes my background as an architect comes into play. In the book, I think more than once you mentioned the idea of the standardized curtain wall was a bit of a failure. And so I'd love to play at devil's advocate and maybe ask why you believe that is, particularly so I can bring this back to some of my students as well. Ah, yeah. Well, you know, I... Um... I studied sculpture and then I studied like in, in, in an architecture school, they were very strong on engineering, 500 guys, three girls. And uh, <laughs> so I, I am one of those people that is very structurally oriented. And, you know, what interesting is of curtain walls is if you try and do a facade that is um, most facades are self-supporting, but don't support anything else. Right. So they just depend, suspended in front of the building. But what is then quite amazing is these massive aluminum boxes that they call mullions uh, that you have to install. And I I think that's kind of strange because, you know, actually the forces are very minimal. So when we did the 497, I said to the uh, criminal engineers, it's like kind of peculiar. Why do they use aluminum for that? Steel would be much better. And... um, and I said, I would, I would like to optimize that. Is that a possibility? And they said, absolutely. But then we have to separate the vertical and horizontal mullions, which, which is a long story short. But I love that because then the grid was gone, right? So now I have very thin steel um, inside and I have horizontal aluminum mullions that are optimized, the skinny ones, the horizontal ones, that are optimized for all the smart weather uh, rubbers and all that stuff. We use those as from the standard curtain wall. And then the verticals, we actually have very tiny steel um, S6 profiles. And it was a really amazing thing because also the all the folds in the facade, hence could be welded in the steel mullions. So it followed it like super, super precise. And then the curtain wall, the, the glass guy, I shouldn't call him curtain wall, but the custom glass guy, 
got excited and said, oh, but then I can uh, extrude emollients in the same angles as you are. Uh, I'm doing this with my hands. You can't see it, but in the same angle as, uh, as the facade. So, you know, it was a super interesting process in that sense that you, you get, you come with an idea, the, the facade engineer brings that idea further, but then the manufacturer gets excited and pushes it even further. So in the end, that is such a beautiful uh, curtain wall that looks super light and uh, much more beautiful than the custom curtain wall that has these massive aluminum boxes that travel up and down, never, you know, the corners are never aligned. It's a mess. I hate them. (laughs) And of course, it's like everything else we're discussing, you know, our viewers will have, you know, there's a lot of graphics that just will have to see that isn't being projected at the moment. Yeah. But they can buy the book, of course. Of course. Yeah. And so, uh, as we, again, there's so much more we could cover. And so unfortunately we just don't have the time unless you want to talk to me all night. So the question I usually end with is, you know, what have you worked on since the book's been published? Now, of course, I'll pretend like I didn't read the interview you have in the book. So could you care to enlighten us on what you have been working on? What's occupying your time since the book has come out? Or actually, it hasn't come out yet, correct? No, the book is coming out uh, very soon. I think they're just putting the finishing touches on the cover um, in Spain which is kind of nice that it's made in Spain. Um, yeah, we, we are currently working on, uh, and again, like it's quite funny that you're asking because we're working on a gigantic site. Um, I can't really talk much about the new projects we have, but a gigantic site uh, down in Jersey for um, uh, kind of a wellness company where there's multiple buildings on one site, uh, even bigger actually the site than the Asian Games and by then, at the same time, we're working on the teeny weeny uh, meditation pod in, in Tokyo, Japan, um, that, that want to put, uh, so this is not a big dome, this is a personal pod that is um, then going to be mass produced. So um, again, it's it's similar kind of thing. And, you know, tons of other projects in between, right? building a house in London and renovating some office buildings and there's a lot of other things going on, but yeah, but just to give you the, 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 the extremes, uh, they are still going. And I, I have to say, I really love that. So we're working again with my friend who has the, he's actually, by the way, the largest independent car design company It's called Aria group in, uh, in LA. We're working with him on the tiny pond. Um, and then with the other project, we are working on new ways of uh, finding concrete uh, that is less of a carbon footprint. Uh, so we're experimenting with mix and um, and also how we can use uh, prefabricated uh, concrete uh, as structural material rather than as cladding for a tower. So it's going to be also super interesting, I think. Oh, sounds it. We'll have to maybe perhaps we could talk again in the future about it all. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I want to thank you again for being on the show with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Super interesting to, uh, to to talk to you about all of this. Very, very good questions. You made me think about a few things. <laughs> oh, you flatter me. And for everyone listening, the book is Strange Objects, New Solids, and Massive Things. And to everyone listening, thank you and have a great day. Thank you, Ryan.